Welcome to the Reality Check Podcast. I'm Zachary Phillips. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about writing therapy, as well as using fiction and poetry to express yourself. So I'm here with my wife again, Maria. Hello. And um, so from last podcast, I said that I was going to share some of the fiction and poetry that I've done, and I'll get to that. But before I get into that, I just wanted to give a quick backstory as to writing. I found it to be one of the best forms of therapy. And when we got together, you were actually more of a writer than I was. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember reading over your poetry and, and like the cadence and having not had much experience of poetry at all, I was actually able to connect to it and it sort of helped inspire me to start writing and start using some of that as a way to express myself. Um, yeah. And your guidance really helped me. Um, and then, you know, some stuff happened with you and you haven't written basically since. I've had writer's block for a long time. <laughs> I'm starting to get back into it. It's because you're happier now, yeah? Yeah, that's yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> you don't have so many sad things to write about, then writing is harder, but I'm getting back into it now. Yeah. But maybe we'll read some of your stuff at a later date, or okay. I'll choose a couple of my favourites to read out. But I don't know how you found it, but personally, for me, writing, it just helps to get my thoughts out onto the page and sort of take away the power of them, or sort of I can process it and see it from a more detached perspective because it's almost like it's not longer it's no longer my thoughts it's more the world's thoughts and I've just yeah. made that if that makes sense absolutely and it helps you process it emotionally I think it helps you sort of you're sort of going over it oh I don't like this word I don't like that word and yeah each time you go over it you detach from it a little bit and yeah. making it making it perfect as to what you're thinking sort of turns it into art as opposed to a rumination that hurts you yeah so with that in mind, I started writing just nonsensical, random stuff down. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I went to poetry, which I've put some online. Mm -hmm. And then I went to writing my first book, Under the Influence, which was basically the story of my childhood. Yeah. And, and, and that whole process has been, you know, like I said, the best forms of therapy. Yeah. Since then, I've basically just gotten into enjoying writing. And I'll still, I'm still write, do some writing therapy and I'm going to put some examples of that up at some stage. Um, and you're helping me <laughs> work yeah. out, work that out, but they'll go up and I'll let you know about those. But what I want to present to you today is some examples of poetry and some fiction. And it's interesting because I'm not, I don't really feel like I was making it. It sort of just came, but obviously it's come in relation to things that are happening in my life. So mm -hmm. it's sort of like I'm half just sort of finding it and half creating it. Uncovering it. Uncovering it. And uh, have you found that with poetry or did it sort of, were you sort of forcing it or how does it happen for you? No, definitely it comes and you have to be there with a pen ready to catch it. But then, yeah, when you get the writer's block, it's like nothing's coming. So You're then, at the whims of... Yeah, but then it's sort of like you have to push through it as well. Like if really nothing's coming, then you sort of have to make time for it in your life and go, okay, what am I going to write about? And just... Have a go and write some crazy, like, nothing down, and then finally it starts to come. So it's a bit of both, I think, isn't nice. it? Yeah, I, I fully agree. And dedicating the time to anything is mm. a massive battle. Um, But for me, you know, if I try and look at it as a form of therapy, then it's I need to do this for my mental health. That's so a really sort of, good way to look at it as well. Yeah, and it's like the same thing I do with exercise. It's like I'm going to do my exercise today because that is like me taking – I don't take medicine for – like I don't have any antidepressants or anything like yeah. that anymore because I'm able to manage it in my own way. Part of that is exercise. Part of that is writing. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's dedicating that time, I suppose. Yeah, so, and if yeah. you don't dedicate the time, it won't come as well. 100%. So the first thing I want to read is 
a poem called Creating a Monster. And just a bit of backstory, I've been reading a bunch of Stephen King. Um, so that's part of it. And that led me down a path of, well, I'm not really afraid of horror stories, but I'm more afraid of real life criminals, real life mm. psychopaths, because they can exist. Yeah, they're really out there. <laughs> they're really out there. And yeah. that, that's a, that's more scary than more, the more horror aspects of mm. Stephen King's writing. So I've been reading a bunch of his stuff and then I wrote a rumination or I wrote a um, sort of a batch of writing therapy, which I'll put online and let you know about. Mm -hmm. But from that, I was able to create this poem. Mm -hmm. So creating a monster. Take away a man's hope and lace him up with dope. Abuse him as a child and expose him to the wild. Show him that God does not exist and remove all reasons to persist. Put him under significant pressure and reveal the joys of cardinal pleasure. Add to that some mental illness, as fractured minds increase in willingness. Explain that societal rules are collective fiction, that everyone follows with utmost conviction. Tell him to observe and play the game, to patiently wait until it's time to take aim. Indoctrinate him into an extreme ideology, and explain all injustice through the lens of this philosophy. Teach him that bad people only get punished in stories, because in reality, these people die old, basking in glories. Finally. Give him the ability to read and learn, and there's nothing left to do but watch the world burn. So that's the poem. And obviously I'm touching on a lot of different themes. You're 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 the one that helps me to edit that. So what's your um <laughs> uh, it's an interesting take on how to, I guess, create a psychopath in this world and yeah, it touches on all sorts of different themes. One of the one of the things that um the in jokes that people say about you is that you quote love killing. Me. I like <laughs> because, watching criminal minds. <laughs> like watching like watching those cop dramas and the criminal yes. that criminal sort of stuff. So it's interesting to me, yeah. So I was trying to um yeah, put all of those things together and just express that in a way that's you know some people in in my mind, I don't think that people are born evil. I think that, you know, in the same way that people aren't born with necessarily mental illness, everyone has a propensity for different things. Yeah. And, you know, you could take if you look over the history of anyone, and I've just finished a book about Charles Manson who convinced people to do killings in the name in his name and a bunch of mm. other crimes and that sort of stuff. Brutal stuff. Fascinating. But you look at his past and the same thing, you look at anyone's past and there's a bunch of things that happened to that person that had they not have happened, the person might not have committed the crimes or the evil that they've done. And, and it goes the other way as well. You know, a lot of people that are very successful had a lot of hardship in their life or they had a lot of support or they had a lot of this and that and different influences. Mm -hmm. Maybe if they went to a different school or had that a different thing, their life would have turned out differently. Mm, absolutely. Um, so that's really fascinating to me from a mental health perspective as well. Raising our son is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like personal now. What, what are we going to be raising? What are we going to be raising? Cause <laughs> you can look back over your past and go, Oh, well, if this didn't happen to me, then I would be in this place. Yeah. Not saying that we're going down this monster path, but. I found it so easy to go, well, if this ha didn't happen in my past, I would be X, Y, Z. But... Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you watch these, um, I guess, the, the criminal minds and all of that, and the most interesting part of it is trying to figure out why the guy did what he did. Why, I guess yeah. that's what you're writing about. Why would a guy do that or a girl do that kind of stuff? And, yeah, it has to be a lot of different things that happen to them or d don't happen to them. And don't, don't get me wrong. There is a, um, I suppose, a genetic capacity as well. And the same thing yeah. back to mental illness. It's you know, if someone's got a capacity for, say, schizophrenia and they take drugs, their likelihood of developing schizophrenia 
increases. Yeah. Same thing with depression and alcohol or, you know, like, you know, addictive personality. Some people are just genetically more and more likely to be addicted. Yeah. So, you know, if you put someone else in the same childhood as a serial killer like Charles Manson, you know, maybe they wouldn't have gone down that same path. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of research about that now and how people have these brains, you know, that are, I don't know, less feeling than other brains or whatever. And that's what the kind of person that can turn into a sociopath. But it's not just the genetic predisposition he has to also, he or she have to also be really disappointed in their life and abused and stuff like that. Whereas someone that has that less feeling brain but has a lovely life that they don't feel like killing people. They just feel like they're doing something maybe scientific or, you know, something else that's not that feeling. <laughs> yeah. There's, there, there is that, there is that sort of difference there. Now, what I want to read to you now is a piece of short fiction um, and it's entitled saying goodbye and I'll read it to you now. It's maybe 500 words. Yep. So saying goodbye. It wasn't a death that was upsetting to me. It was the dying. I was glad when it was over, for her sake and my own. I know it sounds harsh, but that was five years. Five long years of cleaning up vomit, of late nights and close calls. Five years of broken commitments, false hopes and missed opportunities. People, God bless them, they were always trying to console me. Imagine if she just passed away without a warning. At least she had a chance to say goodbye. That was true. I sure did say my goodbyes to her, multiple times. By the end, I'd lost count. What my well-wishing friends failed to realise is that saying goodbye is one of the most painful experiences of your life. Imagine explaining to a child that they're dying, that one day they won't wake up, that they'll pass on, whatever that means, just to have them rebound and recover. The emotional roller coaster of relapse to remission and back again puts everything on hold. I had to quit my job with no carer's leave to speak of following the first battle. They just couldn't keep me on. The guys in the office raised a small amount for me and were supportive, in the beginning at least. You know how when someone first falls ill or is injured, everyone is quick to offer support and help? That doesn't last. These people just don't stay. Who can blame them? After a while, I lost all ability to maintain any semblance of small talk, other than progressively worsening status reports as to my only child's dwindling health. Don't get me wrong, a quick death without an opportunity for goodbye would be just as traumatic. It just wouldn't last as long. Early in December, two years ago, she went into a remission. The doctors suggested that they were quietly hopeful that, she, that it would stick. Regardless of her health, we would always celebrate Christmas. True, more often than not, it was a sombre affair. Held in the hospital ward, we were careful not to disturb the other patients. But not that year. That year we had friends and family down from all corners of the big green one. We ate until we burst then excitedly teared into mounds of presents stored under the real tree, my husband having chopped it down himself earlier that week. Given the size of his VW bug, I've no idea how he managed to see out of the windscreen beyond the fallen branches on his way back home. That night, we all prayed to God, showing thanks for our daughter's recovery. By March, she was in full bore relapse again. I said my goodbyes to her and my husband on the same night. I can't handle this. I can't go through this again. Do you think I can? It's not about us, Steve. It's about her. When he told me that he hoped she would be taken, that her fight be over, I slapped him and told him to go. If that's how you feel, say your goodbyes and be done with us. Two years later, and I now feel the same release he was craving then. When I got the news of her passing, tears fell. Hot, bittersweet tears of mourning 
but also relief. I hated my husband for what he'd said. I too was feeling it back then, but I guess I couldn't face it as he could. Regardless, because of it, I kept him from her. Neither me nor my daughter had seen him since. And now, here I am, alone. When she remissed for the final time, I knew not to get my hopes up. I knew the trend. It'd play out like clockwork. I was numb to it. Every time she sneezed, coughed, or vomited was fresh cause for alarm. Every bruise that was healing, every scratch, and every meal left untouched. When she did fall sick again, I just sighed, hating myself for the thoughts that were already beginning to flood my mind. So, that that piece came to me um, from a melding of a couple of influences on my life. The first is the birth of our son, mm-hmm. um, Archer, who's at the time of the writing of this one was 10 months old. And we've been very, very lucky with him. He hasn't been sick or hospitalized in any, really any capacity. Yeah. He had, um, he had to, like a, some skin sores and some he other little f- things. A couple of colds, but nothing massive. Yeah. Nothing, nothing at all to, you know, complain about. Yeah. So that was my first piece of um, influence of this one. And the second one was from reading Jodie Picoult's My Sister's Keeper. And mm-hmm. if you haven't read it, read it. Don't bother with the... Um, don't bother with the the movie. The movie, yeah. It's, don't worry about the movie. Skip that. <laughs> read the book. Um, like at most books. Anyway, in that book and movie, one of the daughter, one of this lady's daughters, is basically terminally ill for the whole thing, and the stress and the strain put under the put to the family is portrayed quite well in the book, mm. and you see you see the whole family being pulled apart. So, with these influences in mind, it wasn't much of a stretch to imagine a mother. And father, I suppose, being run down by the sheer weight of the emotions caused by a dying child. Yeah, absolutely. So, so once again, um, being um, an editor and obviously fellow parent to our mm-hmm. son, um, how'd you feel about that one? Yeah, it's it's really emotionally hard to read that kind of stuff because you put yourself in in the shoes of the mother and you think, oh God, what would I do? And what would it be like to say goodbye like fifteen times? He finally dies at the end and. And, and, and that's the thing. It's like, I wanted to contra- convey that, like, it's not just black and white that, you know, the cliche of a, a mum sticking by the bed forever isn't, in my mind, 100% realistic. Mm-hmm. There will be parents that are like that. But to say that that parent wouldn't be potentially not glad, but oh, relieved but or like there's, there's, there's a complex emotion yeah. there that's that's hard to pin down. And it's that, that gritty sort of... You don't want your kid to die, but if they've been suffering for years, you know, your life's on hold, their life's on hold. And you'd want the suffering oh. to be over for them. You, There would be a relief. I think it's natural to be like, oh, well, at least the freaking damn suffering's over. That, mm. That's okay. That's actually an okay thing to feel as well. This woman feels really bad in the story about it, but I actually think it's it's part of it and it's almost a healthy part of it, you know, just as much as the grief is. See, it's funny. Like, I wrote it, but I don't know what my reaction in real life would be. Yeah, you wouldn't know. But, my God, I, you couldn't imagine saying goodbye once, let alone multiple yeah. times, and just going through that up and down. And 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 what I've seen with friends and stuff of people that do get sick, people seem to care a lot at the start with when anything happens. Mm. Like, I've had a family member, a few family members commit suicide, mm-hmm. and other things happen in my life. Mm-hmm. And people are very supportive at the start, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm for the most part, Despite what I do here, I keep to myself, so mm. I don't like to shred and show stuff in person. I'm, yeah. you know, fairly contained in my personal Private, life. Yeah. So, you know, I'm okay to okay to deal with it, but even so, there's a very quick drop-off of 
concern and care and stuff. And that's to be fair because I'm not showing that. But when I observe other people as well, something major happens and people sort of, they show care and concern initially. But for like this person, if you're, if you're dealing with, you know, a year long recovery mm. from something or, you know, your partner's sick or your kid's sick for years, like it takes a dedicated friend or family member to stick by you for that whole time. Yeah, you know? and, and also people get this assumption that you'll let them know if you need them. So they think, that's a, oh, that's I don't a need very to good ask. point. Yeah. And 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 that's the thing and I I'm I'm 100% guilty of that as well. Like, mm. you know, everyone's got their own lives and stuff. It's mm. like, "Oh, they seem okay. They're about, you know, they're doing fine. They'll they'll ask me if they need, but yeah. it's uh, how do you find the balance?" I think you if you know that someone's going through something, just periodically just see how they're going. Check in and, and yeah, and have that really honest discussion of like, "Look, how are you, you know, how are you going?" And and do it every two months or something. Don't just yeah. Do it I was, was, was going to ask you that because I, I sometimes struggle with this: is keeping keeping expanded social circles lives in your mind's eye. Mm. We read a book. What was it? Um, Mindsight. Mindsight by Daniel Siegel. Yeah, and he he sort of talks about this was more of like a parenting thing. It was like keeping your child's the idea of what your child's thinking and feeling in your mind. He's got two. He's got one about the child's, but he's got one that's just personally about yourself. So go on. The one called Mindside is just in your own mind. And then he's got one called Parenting from the Inside Out, which is about applying that to the children. But the one about just yourself is like, it's also about how you're, how you're feeling. Like if, like know how you're feeling. So if you're feeling angry, be aware that you're feeling angry. Yeah. But then how is the person you're talking to feeling as well? So if they are also feeling angry, then you need to acknowledge that in your mind as well. And it's really hard. So can you apply that to keeping an extent? Like, you know, if you think about how many people you know, you probably know like hundreds, right? Oh, and yeah. You know, you know that you, you're you very extroverted. You know, like you've got yeah. like their stories in your mind, their lives, all of the things up and downs and that mm. sort of stuff. How can you keep them and what's going through their mind, their, their lives in your mind so you can check up on them periodically? How, how, how do you remember to do it? Because... I'll do it, and when I remember, I'm like, "Oh, I gotta gotta contact that person because." But for whatever reason, maybe this is testament to some of the issues that I find ruminating in my mind. I, I find it hard to detach and step back and go, "Oh, you know, I remember this person had this issue, this issue, this issue. These people are dealing with this. I got to mm. check up on that." How do you how do you keep that and sort of keep contact with with it and keep keep it, you know? How do you keep in touch in touch with all these people? Sort yeah, of how do you, how do you keep track of it all, and how do you how do you make sure that you're you know being as good a friend as you can be? I suppose in that sense. Yeah, that's hard. Um, one thing I think is really good active listening when you are with the person. Um, yeah. I was listening to something the other day. I was saying about memory, and if you are really present and active, like actively engaged with whatever's going on you're more likely to remember that thing. So you can apply that to study and university, but you can also apply that to conversations with your friends. So if they are saying something, try to be there really present with them. You're more likely to remember it later. Um, so so just, just to pause for a second. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously, you know, being there, turn off the phone. Yeah, and if, they, if, you, if you said to them, how are you? And they're saying, well, actually this and that's going on. Actually hear it. And, yeah. and talk to them about it. Even if it's just for two minutes, like, oh, wow, um, that's really sad. You've actually heard it. Not yeah. just, oh, ex- excuse me, I've got to check my phone. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. And another thing, I guess, is be prepared to have those hard conversations with them. Be open about it. So life will naturally 
like pull you away from people, but then people will suddenly turn up as well. So if you maybe haven't talked to someone for two months, but you know, the last time you did, they, their mother had just died. Um, if you were there present listening at the time, you'll remember that. So then when they text you or whatever, two months later, you're like, Oh, how are you doing? Oh, how are you coping with your mum? with your mum's passing? Like, don't be afraid to say that to people. Because we also bring it up with them. Yeah, we also avoid those conversations, and you have a less fulfilling relationship if you avoid those conversations. Speaking of keeping people in our minds, I think you might be able to hear our little son waking up for me. He's awake. So let's um, <laughs> let's call it there, and we'll yep. go on to the questions um that you guys have written in, maybe in the next podcast. So if you have a question or just want to make contact, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and now Pinterest at Zach P Phillips. And, you know, if you want to read or check out more of my poetry and fiction, head over to my website at zachary-phillips.com slash fiction. And I've got a bunch of stuff up there and I'm constantly updating that. So please check it out. And the main thing I want want to encourage you to do is to sign up to my email subscriber list. And that way I can email my blogs, content, podcast, fiction, and all that sort of stuff directly to your emails. And that way you won't miss it because, you know, on social media, the way that the algorithms work and stuff just because you're following someone doesn't mean you're going to actually get everything that they put out. Facebook and other social medias sort of dictate who they'll show and what they show it to. So if you want to stay up to date, please head over to the website, sign up to the email subscriber list, and you'll get the stuff directly to your email. And if you're getting too much or you don't like it, you can always unsubscribe. Finally, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to help support it, the best way you can do is, well, there's a few things you can do. The first one would be to subscribe and share it and recommend it to people. But if you want to get more of my content and also support what I'm doing here, one of the best things you could do would be to head to my website and purchase a copy of my first book, Under the Influence Reclaiming My Childhood. I've put it out as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook, and it's an autobiographical piece that's the story of my life. I, I grew up as the son of an addict, paranoid schizophrenic, chronic hoarder, and drug dealer, and What the book is, is a retelling of some of the more significant, poignant, and memorable experiences of my childhood. It's a fairly intense read, but the people that have read it love it because it's speaking to them in a way that it's, it's sharing aspects of a childhood and how the, how I've related to that and the impact upon my life to this day. And a lot of the readers that have grown up with, you know, similar issues or issues with troubled homes have found that they've gotten a lot of solace from reading my story and that it sort of encouraged them to seek help or to heal or to grow. So like I said, if you are interested in that, head over to my website, zachary-phillips.com, click on the books tab, and in there you'll see Under the Influence. You can read more about that. Or if you head over to amazon.com, you can purchase yourself a copy. Thanks.